in the promises of God, the study on the promises of God. We're in Psalm 32 tonight, the promise of forgiveness. And there are lots of uh, passages in Scripture that deal with certainly this topic of forgiveness, but this is one that I think um, resonates with, well, it resonates with me, that's for sure, but I think it resonates otherwhere, elsewhere in Scripture because it's quoted, for instance, in the uh, book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Paul actually uses this as the basis of his discourse in the book of Romans on forgiveness and the imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness. And so this is an important psalm, as all of them are, but this one uh, especially for that. And um, I, you know, was thinking about this because <clears throat> sometimes we we don't um, understand that God is with us and he, we are present before Him all the time. Uh, our sin in our in our state of sin is also before the Lord, and unless that sin is is removed, is is covered, is uh, well taken away and forgiven, it would be ever before the Lord for all eternity and. It's important that we understand that because we need to deal with sin, both from a perspective of the lost, you know, dealing with sin for forgiveness, but also in like the case of David here who wrote this psalm, um, the, the act of restoration of fellowship, which also breaks that bond that God has with us, not that necessarily that bond of, of salvation, but it does break that bond of fellowship. And to understand that God wants that above everything. He wants us to be happy in our holiness in him in that way. And that's what he starts off talking about here. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. Psalm 32 It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for the day and night your hand was heavy upon me my vitality was turned into the drought of summer I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin Lord, we are thankful for that forgiveness of sin. And Lord, as we open up your book again tonight, we thank you for it. Open it to our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we come to this, and I already mentioned that um, the author of this psalm is David. Although the psalm deals specifically with sin and a forgiveness experience that had gone on in David's life, um, it really is a psalm that I believe the Holy Spirit put into the Word of God using David, um, but put this here for all of us, and including those of us who are gathered here tonight with that. This is one of seven psalms on forgiveness, and I think it's um, they're all big ones, but you, if you want to jot them down, there's Psalm 6, and then Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130 and Psalm 143. And if you want the list of that later, you can come see me after the message. But there are those uh, Psalms of forgiveness, those seven of them. And this being Psalm 32 deals with, um, uh, well, if you have titles in your Bible 
and it would be found in the original psalm, it would say a maskil or a contemplation of David. And it's something to think about. It was a, and I often say that, that when we sing songs, and the psalms are meant to be sung, um, they also were meant to be thought about. And our songs, our hymn books, you know, as I was picking songs tonight, I was thinking, all right, we need some songs on forgiveness. And all those psalms we sang tonight have at least that theme in them. Maybe they have a lot more themes as well. But we should be thinking about what we're singing. And David says that here, you know, we're going to think about it. He actually uses that word Selah twice. Selah is most likely a, a term that, and, and commentators, you know, kind of disagree sometimes. But for the most part, most would, would believe, and I believe this, that it's there to make us pause. And the exact meaning of the word Selah isn't exactly known, but it, it, in the context of where it shows up, it always shows up after an important thought. And then it's like stop or take an interlude um, and think about it. And that's what David does twice in this. He uses that uh, phrase Selah as a stopping point. And that's how it was to be done if you were, I guess, singing it and you were to stop right there and think about it for a bit. Um, I don't know how that works out, but often we just go on to the next thing and we don't listen and lean in and understand what is being said here. Anyways... We can look at this in in, uh, three parts of this uh, section of the psalm that we read. Um, The happiness of forgiveness would be one of them. And then the heaviness of sin and the help of God. And those three things are demonstrated here in David's writings. Uh, Number one, the happiness of forgiveness. And as I mentioned earlier, this psalm is quoted in in, um, Romans chapter 4. And Paul uses it as his basis on that. But it starts off with that idea of blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that's exactly what Paul quotes later on as well. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And he's using that from later on in this chapter. But blessed is he, and that word blessed is the word happy. And it is very similar to what Jesus would have said in Aramaic and the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the uh, hungry, uh, you know, poor in spirit. All that you go right down through the whole thing, the blessed things, happy. And sometimes we connect happiness with, um, well, things that are very shallow at best, right? And God, in his idea of happiness, a deep-seated kind of joy is found solely, really, focused on him. In this psalm, Psalm 32, focuses us back to him. Uh, I actually heard a, a person that um, said something that was, it was, it was heretical, but basically said this, that um, when we come to God and ask forgiveness, we don't do it for God, but we do it for ourselves because he wants us happy. And when you go to church, you don't do it for God, but you do it because he wants us happy and it makes us happy. And I I said, they missed the whole point. We come to church because we come, hopefully, to gather to worship the Lord and to study his word in the process of that and and pray and those those things and commune with one another. And that brings glory to God. And And in the process, you can be quite happy doing that. I, I tell you, I get my greatest joys really out of you know being around God's people 
they spur me on to continue and to do things and do things beyond what I would do normally. And, and that's great. And sometimes there's just a, that joyfulness of being around others that love the Lord. But then the, we, the same thing goes for sin. And when we come before the Lord and we seek his cleansing and his restoration in our life from, as, by means of repentance, we're doing so not just so we can be happy. And that's not what Dave is talking about here when he says blessed. But it, rather we do so so that that joy will be restored and that we will be glorifying God in our holiness. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit here. But the happiness of forgiveness and it's important. And uh, Charles Spurgeon talks about this, uh, well, this text, in this text, in his commentaries, says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And in that uh, idea of understanding that God has forgiven us of our sin, and the idea of transgression, by the way, is pictured as something that is, well, he, he, as Spurgeon puts it this way, there's like in this psalm he talks about the three-headed dog that's barking at the gates of hell. And he says this, there's transgression which depicts a defiant disobedience towards God. <clears throat> it is this, an attitude of revolt or an attitude of rebellion. And it's against the Lord and against God Almighty in that way. Um, Psalm 2, we looked at that last week in the morning service, and says, why do the nations rage, right? There's an open rebellion that set themselves against God. That's transgression, breaking his boundaries. And then there's the idea of sin, and it says sin here, and, and sin is the idea, the Hebrew word, it's very similar in the New Testament, and the Greek word, it's just to miss the mark. Um, here is God's standard, and we have sinned, and the Bible says fallen short. If we go vertical, I guess. So if here's God's standard, man can never attain that in his sin. Never. That's the holiness of God. Sinlessness. And we have that. And then there's the word iniquity, which is found in verse 2. And iniquity represents that twistedness about the, the, the heart, the inward part of us. Our iniquity represents how sin grabs a hold of us and it just becomes in, enveloped in our lives. And it, the word that is used in the Hebrew, my understanding, it can describe a crooked tree. And you've ever seen a tree that grows up around something that, you know, someone put down. There's, you go on the internet and Google, you know, like trees grown around items or something you'll get a whole bunch of pictures out there of strange things that are out there sometimes they like somebody parked the old car in the field and then they just left it there for a couple decades and now now there's trees that are growing right up through it you know that kind of stuff and the car has sort of become part of the tree and tree has grown around it um, I saw one picture of a bicycle. Somebody must have hung a bicycle on a tree branch, and that tree just kept growing until the tree enveloped the bicycle, and there's just two tires and part of a bike frame sticking out of the trunk of this tree as it kind of grew around it. And, and our sin is like that. It envelops us, and our iniquity, all right, which is that crookedness, that, that deformity, that deliberate you know, twisting of things, God's standards, and it is, that's how it interweaves. And it gets pretty complicated. And you can't just dig into that tree, for example, and just rip out that old bike without probably killing the tree. You'd need some kind of miraculous way to restore the tree, you know. And 
the miracle of salvation is that the Lord can take our sin as twisted as it is, how messed up it is, and he can remove it and forgive it, and, and he doesn't even remember it anymore, right? As far as the east is to the west, the depths of the sea. I mean, he's cast our sin away, and that's the idea of forgiveness and particularly the idea of imputation of righteousness because that's what we really need we need to be healed and restored in that uh all of it really demonstrates that we've missed the mark and david says happy is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered and that same word um for for covered and then later in the imputation of sin it deals with it from like for instance genesis fifteen six. Uh, which is in the life of Abraham. And Abraham, it says here of him, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Throughout scripture, the imputation of righteousness and the forgiveness of sin was dependent upon the belief uh, in the Lord and the idea of turning to him in faith and that aspect of repenting from sin to trust the Lord, like Abraham did. Later on, Paul uses Abraham as another example of the belief of Abraham and how he was, basically, he, he, he was imputed righteousness because, or given righteousness because that he believed. It wasn't his own righteousness. It was the Lord's righteousness on his account. And that idea of uh, imputed or accounted, that's, it's an accounting term, and it means that a transaction takes place and when the Lord goes to look at you after you've repented and come to him in faith and been saved, your sin is removed. There's no more deficit of sin in your bank account, your spiritual bank account. It's now paid in full and you have the righteousness of God that replaces it. Isn't that great? And I'm glad that he does that. David understood that too. And again, that is the idea throughout scripture People were saved by faith. Not just faith in anything, but faith in the Lord. And that has never changed. Back in the Old Testament, in those times, like when David or Abraham, they looked ahead by faith to a coming deliverer, a Messiah. Um, they looked to the Lord to trust him. He didn't let them know all the things. He didn't know the, they didn't know the details of the life of Christ or the, the things that we have today um, from the rest of the Bible. But they trusted the Lord and it was accounted to them for righteousness. Today we look back by faith and we believe. And the same thing, that transaction of accounting that goes on of faith and righteousness, excuse me, and the forgiveness of sin, the removal of that based upon the Lord. Important stuff. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the idea there of um, uh, the, in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, the Lord wants us to be sincerely his, and not just, um, well, you know, deceitful in our life or other areas or whatever else. And David had played that part, hadn't he? David understood that. David knew that firsthand. I believe this really is what sort of undergirds this reason why David comes in repentance, of course, is the sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba. That led to the death of, of his child, and it led to 
rebellion in his household. It led to all kinds of problems. It also had some wonderful, great things that came out of that. One of them was Solomon, right? And God built a temple in Jerusalem uh, for you know, himself and, and that using Solomon at that time. And there's lots of things we can look at. But God took what sin had destroyed so much and he made something wonderful out of it in that way. Ah, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But David understood firsthand that so long as he kept his sin hidden, so long as he, he kept it over, you know, on him that way and he didn't go before the Lord, it would just destroy him. And it was destroying David. And this psalm is one that comes as David certainly repents and understands that. And he understands what took place. And there was also murder involved in that, right? Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, sent off to the front line. And David knew, sending him off there, number one, the man would go because he was a dedicated warrior. But number two, he was going to die there. And David did it anyways. We make very bad decisions to try to cover our sin. And it always gets others in trouble. Always. The key to the Christian life is not our personal perfection, but our regular repentance. Uh, I got that quote from someone else, but the key to the Christian life is not our personal perfection, but our regular repentance. That's really what God wants. And I think that's why I, I feel like I can identify with David, because David was a man who, yes, God said his direction was a man after my own heart, but David was a man that had to repent. He was not a perfect man. And I will tell you that you're not perfect either. Um, And we need to regularly come before the Lord and repent, turning back to him. And it will encourage us to live for him when we do that. Sometimes we don't, um, you know, our sin will will silence us. We'll own it. does that. Proverbs chapter 28 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. I like that. You know, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes novels, uh, the story goes that as a prank back in his day, he sent letters, just a note, to five of the most prominent men in England. And his note simply said this, All is found out, flee at once. Within 24 hours, all of them had left the country. You see, the wicked flee when no one pursues. And it's so easy to run when your sin is hidden. And you think, oh, oh, I've been found out. It's another thing to be right with God and have a spirit where there is no deceit. And it says, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's a great thing. That you can stand before, you know, courts of law in man's law or others. And if your cause is before God and it is right, you can stand with all boldness in front of whatever. A king, a dictator, some tyrant somewhere. You can stand before them and give a defense. And you do that in boldness. And I think that that's, you know, one of the great um, testimonies that church history has left through the martyrs and others that have stood before 
well, in very perilous times, and some have lost their life for the sake of the gospel, and they've done so as bold as lions. And yet how quickly we flee, you know, when sin is on us. Beware of that. Beware. We come to the heaviness of sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. When I kept silent. The silence he was referring to was the silence of not asking God to forgive him. And it's easy to fall into that rut. And a rut is nothing more than a grave with two ends kicked out, right? Someone said it that way. My bones grew old. Sin will take a a physical toll on you. And worse than ever, it will take a physical toll even on the life of the believer, won't it? I think sometimes we look back in our own society and what was considered sin even a decade ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago, whatever, is now something that people don't even talk about because they don't think it's sin. Yet it's still sin, you know. Um, What would have kept our grandparents up at night thinking about some evil act that is going on in their family? Now people celebrate, you know. I don't understand that sometimes. I do because... When we keep silent, well, it just it festers, it grows, it becomes more twisted. But in ultimately, it will be our downfall as a nation, as a people, as individuals. He says, through my groaning all the day long. Sin hurts. Sin will make you groan. It's likened like a, a wounded animal. Isaiah 59, 11 uses the same word in the verse 11 here. It says growl like bears. It's that idea of an animal that's wounded growling and groaning. We all growl like bears and we moan sadly like doves. We look for justice but there is none for salvation but it is far from us. You see, that's the condition in our sin. And yet, Salvation isn't far for the repenter. The person who repents, it's, in, it's instantly there. He's quick to forgive. Oh, we're thankful for that. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We covered that in, when we went through our study in the book of Proverbs not long ago. But you see here, you cover sin, that's, the, that's an option. You try to, but you won't prosper. And it will be uncovered. Someday before God, if no one else. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Confession of sin, to come before the Lord. And you know, the very practical thing, sometimes people say, hey, I've got something I've got to tell you. And they want to confess a sin or whatever. And I always say it this way. Um, first of all, I'm just a man. I'm not here to forgive you of your sins. I can only point you to the one who can forgive you. That's for sure. So I don't necessarily hear confessions uh, like others do, right? But I, if someone comes to me and says, I need to tell you something because I am repenting and I need you to keep me accountable, I'll listen. And I've done that as well. And I would just say this, it's confessing. But ultimately we confess before God. And the scope of your sin, you want to confess it um, you know, in the scope of who it's offended, I guess. Who, whose offense you caused. So if you 
obviously we every sin offends God. So you start there, confessing before God. But if you have committed a sin that has affected a brother, a sister, someone else, maybe your enemy, I don't know. And, well, you need to confess it also to them, to the scope in which it is out there in that way. And there's some things. That's why I say I don't think God requires us to air all our dirty laundry and every thought and all that stuff. And it's a good thing because none of us would ever have any time to say anything else. Right? But it is a matter of confessing it to God. But then it's not just confession. It's forsaking. See, he doesn't want us to just say, oh, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, whatever, and go right back at it. He wants us to forsake it. And that part is sometimes where there is this cycle of, um, of sin gripping our hearts in that stuff. We are only as sick as our secrets. <laughs> and understand those secrets before the Lord in that. Verse 4, he goes on to say, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality, my life was turned into the drought of summer. And the idea there is, um, and I think it's actually in the New Living Translation, it says, Day and night your hand was of discipline was heavy on me, my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And you kind of picture that, like when your sin is on you, and you have broken fellowship with the Lord or with others or whatever, it begins to dry you out spiritually. And all of a sudden, I think of it like on a hot day, and you pour some water on the pavement, right? It doesn't take long, that water's gone, just like that. Or some old slug that's trying to go across the road, you know, and the sun comes up, and they're done, you know? Sun hits them, and they're just nothing but a little dried up raisin of a bug or slug or whatever they are. You know, you see that. They can't get out of it. But people don't need to be like that. We can repent and we can be blessed in the Lord. And we can be like a fountain of water, right? A tree planted by rivers of water. We can have that relationship with God. But David says here, your hand was heavy upon me. The idea of heavy was a, to grievously afflict. Sometimes God's hand of discipline hurts greatly. And it does so not because he's an angry God in heaven who just wants to make us miserable, but because he loves us. I think it was Max Lucado who said this, He loves us just the way we are, but loves us too much to let us keep living the way we are. And that's true. He has done something about it. He came down here for us and did that. We have to understand that we, every single individual, are sinners before God. And our sin separates us from God. And it is a constant, like I said, act of repentance where you are coming before him daily and saying, Oh Lord, if there's something in my heart, there's something in my mind, something in my life that I am sinning against you, you reveal it to me. And when he reveals it, deal with it, confess it, forsake it, move on and do it. Got to do it. Too often we like to talk about everybody else's sin, right? It was like the two ladies sitting in church and the preacher got preaching one day and he started preaching about, he started preaching about, you know, the evils of, uh, of money and they were saying, amen, amen. And he preached about, you know, the evils of adultery, amen, amen, they were saying. And then they got down to gossip and then one of them looked at the other and said, now he's just meddling, you know. 
He stopped preaching and just meddling. Sometimes we don't like it when the sin points back at us. And that's, that's the case, isn't it? He wants us right through and through. And sin will be found out. And by the way, it'll shut you down, won't it? A true story. My dad, when he got saved, um, he started going to church there in Eagle Lake. And there was a guy in the church. I think he's, he's now gone with the Lord. But he would come in the summer and he would be there. And um, he was sort of out of place culturally because he said amen to everything. You know, that's more of a southern thing. But um, he was there in church saying amen, amen, amen. And then my dad came to church. My dad was the game warden. Okay. And he stopped saying amen. And it was so noticeable, people wondered what happened. Well, my dad had caught him poaching, you know. And he realized, now the game warden's in church, you know. I can't say amen anymore. My dad didn't care, you know, that way. But it was just one of those things that sometimes it silences us, doesn't it? Uh, Gary tells that story. I came across this old uh, Snuffy Smith um, comic. I saw this posted uh, recently. It says, well, that figures. Normally, we don't ever see hiding her hair of the game warden. But then one day we decide to go whole hog wild. And of course they have a boat full of fish. And you see the quote there on the end. Row it on in boys. Here boys. <laughs> right? Game warden's watching. But even more so the Lord's watching. Right? Um, and are you right with him? You know? Right with the Lord. Because believe it or not the game warden can't be everywhere present. Some of you know that probably. Right? But I say this. God is a God who wants us that way. He wants us to um, be like that. Verse 5, he says, and, and back in verse 4 too, but he says, acknowledge my sin to you. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then there's that Selah. Think about it. Think about it. Seventy times in the Bible, the word Selah is used and in the psalms that is and uh again it's this idea of pausing and pondering and here david can't even he just has to stop and think about that right i acknowledged my sin to you that's past tense and my iniquity i have not hidden i said i will confess my transgressions to the lord and it says you forgave the iniquity of my sin He took care of it. Aren't you glad? Forgiveness is such that way. And you know, I look back and I think there are times in my own life where I feel like I've miserably failed the Lord. Just miserably. And and I've said, oh God, you know, I'm thankful I messed up my testimony so bad that I couldn't stand up here in front of you tonight. But there have been just times I've said, oh God, how is it that sin has come up again and I'm so quickly deceived or this happens or... And I blame all kinds of others, and then I have to go back to myself. Oh, Lord. And I'm so thankful he's there, and he's wanting us to be right back in fellowship with him. Time and time and time again. The best picture of that, I think, is seen in John chapter 21. And you know the story. It's a familiar one. It's after the resurrection. And the disciples have gone back fishing. I mean, after all, Jesus has died, and... And, and there's some confusion about whether, you know, what's going on. And they thought he had been the one, you know, for sure. And then they just, well, let's go back and do something familiar. Let's go fishing. And they toil all night. They haven't got any fish. And the game warden wasn't watching them either, you know. But Jesus was. 
Remember, he's at the shore. And he says, children, you have anything to eat? No, we haven't caught anything. We'll cast the net on the other side. And they do. And immediately, they pull up a great big draft of fishes. And they recognize who it is. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. And I love what Peter does. It, it, it says, um, well, prior to this verse, but he plunged in. First had to put his clothes on there, but he plunged in. And he just, he knew who it was. And he's headed to Jesus. This is the same Peter who just a short time before that had denied the Lord. And sometimes I feel like that Peter who can deny the Lord so easily. And yet the Lord's still there. He wants Peter. And it says here, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Then Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Come and dine. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. You ever have that? You're just confronted by the Lord and you knew it. You just know it's the Lord. And you you can't say anything. You're just undone. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he goes in before the Lord in the temple, he sees him high and lifted up. And... The Lord Seraph goes and takes a coal off the altar, touches his lips. The prophet of God was had unclean lips. <laughs> the man who had spoken probably the best words in all the nation, yet he had unclean lips. And I thought, wow. And he had this encounter with God and he was undone. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. But there's the Lord. And the Lord commissioned Isaiah. Here he commissions his disciples. Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And then it says, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? I don't know what the these are. Was it the other disciples? Was it the fish? Was it the meal? I don't know. There's a lot of things that we sometimes need to stop and ponder and think, do I love him more than you name it? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. I'm thinking Peter right now, you know, he's going, but Lord, I'm the one that just said I don't know you. I rejected you when a little boy came and asked me, weren't you with him? And he remember he cursed and swore not. You know, that I don't know the man. Now he says, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Uh, I love that. Here's Peter who really had, he had messed it up so badly that he just, you know, anybody else would said, you go back fishing because that's where you deserve to be. 
catching nothing and not the Lord. Instead, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. May I add, and be bold like a lion. And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Peter would die a martyr's death. And when it came down to it, when his life was on the line, Peter, tradition tells us he was, he was crucified at Rome. And here he would be, he would die for the Lord, having his arms outstretched, requesting to be killed, by the way, crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. Think about that. He encourages Peter, not with, you'd say, that's not very encouraging. You're telling me how I'm going to die. It doesn't sound good. But you know what he's saying to Peter? This is Peter who had no confidence anymore. The failure Peter. And he says to the failure Peter, Peter, it's not over. You, you love me? You're going to go forward and someday you're going to stand for me fully. In death, you're going to stand for me. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Aren't you glad he's the God of many chances, right? I mean, he had already appeared to the disciples elsewhere. And he appears to him again and again and again. And he commissions them again and again and again. And that's good because there's a room full of disciples in here and he needs to commission us again. Follow him. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for forgiveness. And oh Lord, let not sin grip our hearts that we become silent, stuck, drying out. <laughs> but Lord, help us to be bold as lions and, and help us, oh God, to be right with you. The two will follow. And thank you, Lord, for that. And help us to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.